Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would trust in you, knowing that our confidence comes in the fact that Christ has died, Christ is risen and reigns from on high, and that he will come again. Let us have this confidence no matter what we see in the world, that we be not afraid but trust in you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> if you've followed anything of popular psychology, you've probably heard of the phrase fright, flight or fright. In other words, you know that when you face trouble, you have this tendency within yourself to do one of two things. Either stand up and get ready for a fight, arm yourself and come out swinging, or, fl or flight, run away from the problem and hope that it goes away and solves itself. Psalm 11 begs this question and, 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 and makes us think about this question. What do you do when you see trouble coming? Do you fight? Do you get ready to arm yourself and, and go to battle? Or do you run away? Or, as the psalm suggests, do you take a third option? David starts this psalm with a very simple statement. In the Lord I take my refuge. In the Lord I take my refuge. The Psalter talks about this idea of taking your refuge in the Lord more than 40 times. And I did a quick little search of it as I was preparing. It was at least 46 times there's this idea of taking your refuge in the Lord. It pops up. It's not to mention the rest of the, of the Bible, the rest of Scripture. The Scripture, and specifically the Psalms, call us again and again to take our refuge in the Lord. Is this your reaction when trouble falls upon you? Do you go to the Lord on your knees and beg for refuge? ask for protection? Do you have the confidence that David has that the Lord is your refuge? The Psalm, of, Psalm 11 is to remind you and I as Christians that our refuge, our confidence in trouble stands in Christ alone. But there are those around us who might offer us other advice. Last night, I, I think chicken analogies are going to become a more common theme. Last night, when I close up the coop at night, I go in and I count. You know, I, I have four fingers, so I can at least count to four. I don't know if I can count much higher. And I counted, and, and there were just three birds. And we have four. And I counted again, just in case I miscounted. There were still three birds. And I looked in the back, and there were still three birds. So I finally concluded, well, one of them has gone off on an adventure. I didn't hear any screaming or anything from the yard between the last time I had seen her and now. And so I figured she's probably fine, but I was a little concerned that she might be hurt somewhere on the property. And so Julie and my father-in-law and I, father-in-law and I looked around and looked around and looked around and no chicken was to be found. And before I gave up, I thought, you know, we've been looking down low and I looked up and we have this cypress tree right next to our porch and sure enough there was a big white blob 
in the middle of the cypress tree. And so I thought, well, I'm going to try and get her to run out of the cypress tree so she'll run home and spend the night where she's safe. But this had the opposite effect. Instead, she went up and up and up further into the cypress tree. Because she knew in her, in her head, in her little tiny chicken brain, that going higher was a safer place, even though I don't know why she thought I was out to get her. I was out to get her, but not in a malicious way. But in her, in her little chicken brain, she thought, if I go higher, he can't get me. And, and, and sure enough, in the morning, she started clucking, and she was fine. She got out of the tree and went and told her friends, I didn't spend the night here, um, which I'm a little concerned about, but we'll see how that goes later. But birds, we've experienced this, if not with chickens, with some sort of bird. You're walking along your path, and all of a sudden, there's this big, and all the birds fly out. And this is what David's friends are alluding to for the next two and a half verses. They say to David, flee like a bird to your mountain. Flee, run away from this problem that is hitting you. And this advice, of course, isn't terrible, But for David, it's actually really, really rather demoralizing. On the surface level, it's actually good advice. If you have a friend who's in danger, not for the sake of the gospel, you should probably tell them to get out of that situation. If they might get hurt or or injured in the situation, yes, they should flee. But, But that's not what David is facing. The Lord has already ordained David to be the next king of Israel. But the present king doesn't like that very much. What is most likely happening in Psalm 11 is as David runs from Saul, who is the present king of Israel, because Saul wants to kill him. But David also has a confidence that, no, the Lord has said, I will be the next king of Israel. Therefore, Saul can't actually hurt him. But the advice in and of itself is demoralizing because his friends don't see that. The reason we know that it's probably this case is that David fled, as David flees from Saul in 1 Samuel 26, David actually talks about Saul coming out after him like as though he's hunting a partridge. So it seems like it's probably a similar, the same situation that's going on here. But for him, he's, he's worried and scared, and all of a sudden his friends are like, no, run away. And they continue to describe the darkness of what Saul is doing. David's friends are concerned because they can see within Saul that wickedness has overtaken him and that he's out for blood. They say that the wicked take aim in the dark of the night at the heart of the upright. In other words, Saul is looking for blood. He's out not just to injure him, but to kill him. And they say that it's in the dark Because probably deep down inside, Saul knows what he's doing is wicked. Darkness in poetry and in in scripture in general very often represents and reminds us of wickedness. Because the, the, the ancients recognized that it's much easier to do bad things when they're hidden from others. Wickedness operates the most freely when people are blind to it. And that reminds us of, of John 1 and other places where we're reminded that Christ is the light. And it's, it's like the couch, right? I was thinking of it. I was looking at my couch when I thought of this, which is embarrassing. But if you shine a light under the couch, right, all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I, it looks like I haven't cleaned in 
decades, even if you've only lived in the house a year and a half. <laughs> and it's, it's that same idea. Light shines into our hearts, and all of a sudden it exposes what's in our hearts. And if we see that under our couch of our, of our heart, there's all this dirt and grime, then by the grace of Christ, let him clean it out. Flee from whatever that is. Let that light shine even in the most scary corners of your heart. Because he can and will sanctify you. And if we live in the light, the world around us will benefit as well. Because the world will see good and can't, and can't pretend that evil is good. So live in the light. David's friends continue, continue on in verse 3 and ask, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about all the different ways in which people t- attack foundations. And one of the ways was the attacking of the foundation of a biblical faith. This started with a philosopher simply asking, well, maybe, or stating, maybe, maybe this text of Scripture is just written by man. And they had a good idea about God, and they wrote it down. And they pushed it a little further. To what if the Pentateuch isn't written by Moses? And they built, and it built, and it built. And today we have enough evidence to say, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Mo- Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And if we take our time and look at the Ark of Scripture, there's so much consistency that across the myriad of authors that they have, we can say with confidence that I'm not nearly creative enough to, to write a book that has that much consistency alongside of somebody else that I know. We can say with, with some confidence that it does, in fact, have a divine authorship. Scripture isn't just some experiment of the ancients to see what would happen. But no, it was inspired by God. It was breathed out by God. But when we lose that foundational understanding of what Scripture is, our foundation falls apart. You can think of a, a myriad of, of examples of when foundations fall apart. If you lose the foundation of Scripture, being the Word of God and authoritative in your life, your faith will crumble. If you lose the foundation in your house, if it starts to bend or sink, your house is going to start to crumble. If you lose the foundation in your marriage, your marriage will crumble. Foundations are incredibly important. And so their friends see what what Saul is doing. David's friend sees what Saul is doing, and they become worried. What happens if he destroys the foundation of of our country? How can we possibly, what can we possibly do? In the light of this, we can see why they say to to David, flee from this man because he's up to no good. Verse 3, that that foundation language, is the peak of this despondency. And this unbelief could lead us to tremble in fear before the desires of the wicked. Unbelief will break your confidence in Christ. But David gives us a response. David responds, The Lord is in his holy temple. This phrase is found another place in scripture, and it gives us a really good understanding of what David is getting at here. 
The phrase is also found in the book of Habakkuk as the prophet wrestles with how God is using these pagan nations to judge Israel. You wonder, how can you possibly do this? These, these people are, are terrible. And yet that's what God is doing. He's bringing them in to reform his people. And you get to the pinnacle of this book, and Habakkuk says, the Lord, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. If you come to morning or evening prayer, if you participated at home, you might know this verse by heart because it's, it's a favorite to call to worship. It's a favorite call to worship in that office. And it's because it grounds us in something incredibly important. It grounds us in what the prophet is recognizing. He is recognizing that the Lord reigns over the earth every moment and in every way. The prophet recognizes in saying, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That the Lord reigns and he will make all things right. And this is what David is recognizing as well. David not only recognizes it, but he has confidence. He knows that the Lord reigns. As Christians, you cannot forget the position that Christ holds today. His reason for ascending and his reason that he will come again is that for now, while we wait for his return, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. In other words, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord reigns. And he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. He will come again to make all things right. Everything David is facing is terrifying. It is horrible and horrifying. You may not be facing that level of terror today, but you probably have troubles and concerns in your life, whether it be in the world itself or in your personal life. And everything that keeps you up in the night, everything that troubles you, everything that might worry you, remember this. The Lord is in his holy temple. You can trust him. You can rest in him. David drives this home as he says, The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. It is tempting to think of God as being far off. It is tempting to think that he does not see what we do in the dark. It is tempting to think that he is not near us in our trouble. But remember this. He sees with his eyes. His eyelids test us. In other words, he is close to you today. Verse 5 and 6 continue to push us towards and point us towards what Christ has already done for you. And now we're going to enter into an area that sometimes we don't like talking about so much, and that is wrath. Christ has already drank the cup of wrath. Christ has already drank the cup of wrath so that you and I can drink the cup of salvation. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane as Christ wrestles and Christ prays. And he asks the Lord, take this cup from me. 
It is the cup that David talks about here. It is the cup of fire and sulfur and scorching wind that is their portion, their cup. Christ took this for us so that we could drink the cup of salvation, so that we could come to his table and participate in the spiritual communion with him. The first question that we must wrestle with as we get to verses 5 and 6 is what do we as Christians do when we pray imprecatory psalms? You're probably going, oh boy, it's one of those $5 words. Well, that's okay. An imprecatory psalm is a psalm where the psalmist prays against his enemies. And what does Christ tell us about our enemies? He doesn't say, go ahead and pray all those psalms about how awful they are. He doesn't say, hate your enemies. No, what does Christ say? He says, love your enemies. Now, Psalm 11 isn't exactly imprecatory, but it has these hints of it. And since a big portion of the Psalter are taken up with these types of psalms that pray against those that are out to get the psalmist, I want to take just a moment to think about that. It's not intrinsically bad to desire judgment. Because it's in judgment that our hearts feel the weight of sin. And it can cause us and cause others to run in repentance to Christ. But we temper our praying for judgment with praying for mercy. Because as we've already noticed, we have as we've already noted, we have experienced an incredible depth of mercy. So when you pray for someone who has done something evil to you, when you pray for something, someone who has done something that hurts you to your core, pray not just for justice, but pray for mercy. And yes, this is exceptionally hard. But to pray for that someone would enjoy mercy allows us to experience a love for them. Because as soon as you start praying for somebody's mercy, it becomes harder and harder to hate them. And a lot easier to feel Christ's calling that we would love our enemies. Yes, I know this is hard. Yes, I know that this can be difficult. But it is by Christ's grace that we are able to do it. It is by Christ's grace that we can pray with this fervency. And so pray confidently because you know what Christ has already completed for you. Our confidence in Christ is in what he has already done. It is that he has drank this cup. For the Christian, he has freed you from your sin so that you can be counted as righteous. This is what gives you the confidence to come boldly before the throne of grace, to live boldly for the sake of the gospel, so that if you are in David's shoes and you are preaching Christ and somebody seeks to silence you, you need not shudder. You need not worry. And if this morning you wonder, do I really know Christ? If you experience some aching within yourself, something that tells you something isn't quite right, in this world, it is that Christ is calling you to drink his cup of salvation. Repent and believe. David ends this morning with a note of confidence. 
he prays, he states, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. There's no better news than that. There's no better news of the beatific vision. Because we have put on Christ, one day we will be with Christ. You may be facing anxieties about the world around you. You may be facing some horrible personal issue or some difficult decision. You may be wrestling with your place in the world. But the real hope for you today is that you will abide in Christ today and forever. This can be your peace. This can be your confidence in the face of whatever troubles you. That promise that you can persevere to the end. That promise that you can have confidence in Christ. Because Christ has made you upright. And one day soon, you will see his face. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.